here on the panel RNZ National. Nice to be here, Wallace Chapman, uh, with Verity Johnson and Nick Leggett. And Energy and Resources Minister Megan Woods has announced that from mid-next year, the Commerce Commission will have the power to regulate fuel prices. This was one of a number of announcements made today in an effort to keep fuel stocks secure and affordable, uh, particularly following the closure of the Marsden Point oil refinery. And another component is that fuel importers and wholesalers with onshore storage facilities will be required to hold set minimums of petrol, diesel and jet fuel. Uh, So, for example, what do you got? You've got um, onshore fuel supplies to last at least 28 days for petrol, 24 days for jet fuel, fuel and 21 days for diesel. To break down announcements uh, for us, we have the AA Principal Policy Advisor, Terry Collins. Kia ora, Terry. Uh, good afternoon. What were your... Did you see this coming? Is it uh, worth doing? Well, we saw the uh, storage requirements coming. We mm. consulted on it early in the year. It was a consequence of the refinery shutting down. And it was around, I think, some of the inputs geopolitically about how we manage risks involved with holding our oil stocks. And what was the key takeaway from the announcement today from your end, Derry? Well, what I find interesting is that uh, 21 days for diesel. It's actually 28 days because the government is going to purchase $70 million worth approximately seven days of diesel supply. But looking uh, into some of the fine print, they're also changing the vehicle fuel levy um, to fund some of that work around the uh, around it, around the resilience on, of the oil supplies kept on shore in New Zealand, which could mean we get a little bit of an extra charge put on our petrol or, or our road user charges to cover that fee. Oh. But I guess from a layperson perspective, Terry, regarding the volatility, uh, you know, in, in both global supply and geopolitical issues, it kind of does make sense to have this um, security of supply. Oh, definitely. Look, we're at risk of two things. One's domestically. We all know we live on the Pacific or on the fire. We could have earthquakes. We could have a tsunami. We could have a natural disaster. We could have some other form of disaster just locally. And having those supplies will allow us the time to readjust the logistics chain and to manage those accordingly. Um, the other one is internationally. And if they, whatever happens that occurs to disrupt the shipping channels, would probably affect our neighbours as well, and it would be a really significant impact. All right. I know, Nick, you'll have a bit to say on this. Verity, um, what's, this, what's in this for you? I'm curious. I mean, Terry, I don't know a lot about this, but I was hoping you could tell me. In terms of me as average person buying petrol at the pump, how much of that is set by someone like Shell or Exxon or whoever? And in terms of a percentage of the price that I'm paying, how much is their margin on that? Well, look, the industry is a cost-plus industry. They basically have to buy the crude oil, which is at fairly high levels now, nearly record highs. It's come down a bit. It is at record high refining costs. Shipping has gone up three times in the last three, times three in the last year, uh, and on top of that, our dollars decreased by 25% in value. So that's why we've got these really high volumes. The, the margins that the companies use, well, they're competitive within the market, but they're not the major price drivers. They're price takers currently. All right, Nick Leggett. And that's because I assume, Terry, because of the size of our market and that we're small and out of the way. Um, But I'm interested to know, the government made the decision to close down Marsden Point, which was uh, an onshore refinery, and now they're talking about fuel security. And I'm just interested, is there any contradiction there in your mind or 
uh, you know, could we have could we have done could we have been in a better position to ward off risk had we kept refining? Hindsight's a wonderful thing. I'll be clear, though, the government didn't make the decision to shut the refinery down. The owners of the refinery made that decision. In fact, um, one of the conditions of sale of uh, Z to Ampol, the Australian company, was that they no longer had ownership or part ownership of the refinery. So that was a commercial transaction. Right. What happened is the government then said, well, we're not stepping in mm. to to, um, to to take over the operation of this. We're not in the refining business. Um and they did that at a time when they've been suffering losses over a number of years and really bad timing because the moment they closed it down, the refining um, values went up. They, they nearly went up four times what you could get from a refining product and all the refineries started making record profits. So a rather, a rather bad commercial decision made at the time. But it does leave us in that position. Look, that refinery couldn't, didn't refine New Zealand product anyway. We've got what's known as light, sweet oil, and it predominantly goes to Australia, where it gets a premium price because it's high quality. What we were getting into the refinery was basically out of uh, Saudi Arabia, Asia, and it was a much heavier crude, and the refinery was optimised to handle it. So... And also, in disasters, I mean, compared to Australia, two refineries, about 25% of their fuel is indigenous. Uh, ours is, is less than 10, probably not even five. So I think they just thought, well, with going out and getting all our refined product down in the Asian market, instead of having one vulnerable source, a refinery, which could have caught on fire and been a, been a cause of problems, they now have multiple refineries that make our product all over the Southeast Asia. Yeah, very interesting. We're talking about this uh, announcement uh, this afternoon or today. Um, Megan Woods announcing that from next year, the Commerce Commission will have the power to regulate fuel prices. And look, there was a bit of a spike, wasn't there? There was a, um, a spike in July regarding prices, and it was all over the news for uh, for a couple of weeks. But actually. There has been a slight decrease in fuel companies' profit margins since uh, 2020. Um, so what, what happens? Under what circumstances would the Commerce Commission take over? Well, they did this, this is all a part of the market survey that they did in 2019, and there was a couple of things that came out of it. One is they wanted more transparency in the wholesale market, and so they required that the... Uh, each of the suppliers advertised their daily cost for anybody who came up and wanted to purchase. Mm. And they had a number of other conditions to open the market up. Look, I did a bit of looking around today, and I found a couple of little interesting things. Our mm. retail market seems to be operating quite well because we've got variations in prices within regions and between regions, and some of the gaps are quite big. I then looked at some of the terminal gate prices, and it was cheaper per litre to buy 50 litres of fuel in a town where if I had wanted to buy wholesale 5,000 litres, I had to pay 8 or 9 cents more per litre. And I think that's one of the things that the Commerce Commission wants to be looking at, is why is it that to buy large volumes at wholesale prices, I'm paying more than retail? It doesn't seem to make sense. Ah, okay, interesting. Yeah, because um, uh, but Zed, a spokesperson from Zed, said, look, um, said along the same signs lines as you, Terry, that it's kind of, they believe the market's functioning quite well at the moment, quoting, we are required to provide our margins and our profitability to the Commerce Commission on a regular basis. There is no other industry in the country that reports its margins and profitability with the regularity that the fuel 
industry does. No, absolutely correct. And I think what Minister Woods announced today was, now that we know all the details, we've seen the margins, let's give ourselves a tool that we can do something about it if we don't like what we see. Very interesting stuff, Terry. Kia ora. Thanks for your time. Uh, Terry Collins there, uh, the AA Principal uh, Policy Advisor. Quite a, when you get into it, uh, Verity, fairly complex issue, or quite a nuanced issue, the old uh, fuel pricing, eh? how it's set and all that sort of stuff. And yeah. But uh, nonetheless, it's, uh, uh, you know, even though we're going into a green future, mm. quote unquote, we're still very reliant. We are. Aren't we? We're incredibly vulnerable as well. And I saw they'd pushed it out a year as well. So they were going to do the biofuel introduction in 23 and they pushed it out a year because we're still not ready to do it. So now they're actually talking about in 2024 with biofuels mm. and going green. But, like, am I alone here in being like, when are we going to shift the emphasis from oil to actually using renewable energies and being more self-sufficient? Because I feel like climate change is a burning house that we're stuck in and we're still having this conversation about petrol and stuff. And it's like, guys, the house is on fire. All right. Now, uh, 16 past for the panel. Verity Johnson, Nick Leggett uh, with me this afternoon. And by the way, thanks for your feedback this afternoon. Now, results are slowly trickling in for the midterm elections to determine who controls Congress. For two years, both chambers, the House of Representatives and the Senate, have been controlled by Democrats. Now, what are the midterms? These are elections held every two years that fall in the middle of a president's four-year term in office. They decide the makeup of Congress, the body that makes the uh, nationwide laws. It's been described as one of the most consequential, unpredictable and expensive U.S. midterm campaigns. And the stakes in this election they're high. Many races have been teetering on a knife edge, but Democrats are bracing for losses, even in traditionally blue areas. It could also shape the future of representative democracy. That's what the New York Times said. And I just see uh, one of some results coming in. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who was the press secretary under Donald Trump, will be the first woman governor of Arkansas. To discuss is David Smith from the United States uh, stu- sorry, the United States Studies Centre at the University of New South Wales and David is the Associate Professor in American Politics and Foreign Policy. David, welcome to the programme. Good afternoon. The stakes in this election are high, said the New York Times. Is that something that you would agree with? How high, uh, in fact, are they? Yeah, it's high not just because of control of Congress, But because of control of state officers like governor and secretary of state, who are the people who will have responsibility at the next presidential election for certifying their state's election results. And there are people running in those states who believe that the 2020 election results should not have been certified. So it's not just high stakes over control of Congress. This election could be very consequential for the next presidential election too. And we'll come to that, David, because that's a very, very interesting point. That, But as an explainer for us who don't always follow it, why do mm. the midterms matter? They really matter because the president sits outside of Congress. It's not like the prime minister in New Zealand or Australia who's elected as part of the legislature. The, the president has to negotiate with Congress. It's a lot easier for them to negotiate when their party controls both houses of Congress as as Democrats currently do. If Biden has to negotiate with a Republican-controlled Senate and a Republican-controlled House of Representatives, it's going to be a lot harder for him to get anything through, as well as to make appointments. 
if Republicans win the Senate, Biden can probably kiss goodbye any chance of appointing another Supreme Court justice. So this is really important for the functioning of American government over the next two years. All right, so it's happening right now. Uh, results are slowly trickling in, David. So as we speak, uh, what's of interest to you? What are you keeping your eye on? So it looks like it's going to be very, very close in the Senate. And there are still some key races in Western states where we don't even have any uh, votes in yet. But certainly the races in Pennsylvania, Georgia and Arizona are looking very, very close, Pennsylvania and Georgia in particular. And those are three of the states that could actually determine who wins the Senate. Nevada, when the results start start to come in, is going to be another one. Uh, Wisconsin is also looking very close. All of those currently too close to call. In the House of Representatives, it's very likely that Republicans will win. The question is, by how much? It's too early yet really to tell uh, by how much. It looks like Democrats perhaps haven't been completely wiped out, which is what the fear was. But so far, Republicans are managing to flip House seats that will uh, get them over the line. Another result which I find really interesting, though, is that Ron DeSantis, the Republican governor of Florida, won his re-election by a huge margin, by something like 20, 20 points, where he only won it by about one point last time. The reason that's significant is because he is regarded as one of the only plausible challenges to Donald Trump in oh. a 2024 presidential election. And he's he would be challenging Trump from the right. He would basically be trying to market himself as a more electable uh, version of Trump. Now, we don't know yet whether he will run for president. Uh, Trump is clearly quite nervous about him running for president and is started to make up insulting nicknames for him. The fact that he was able to win by such a huge margin is really going to encourage DeSantis' allies because there are a lot of Republicans who want to see him run rather than Trump, even though if a primary were held tomorrow, Trump would run easily. But it's still, it's still a while away. So that's a very interesting result. Yeah. Now, David, uh, we've got a panel with us, of course, uh, Verity. Kia ora, David. Um, I was curious if you could tell me, I was reading about this and it said that if the Republicans overwhelm the House of Representatives, they're going to be trying to stop the January investigation into the into the, um, the coup that was Jan attempted. Six. Yeah, the Jan mm. 6 insurrection attempt. So if Republicans do end up dominating in the House of Representatives, mm. what happens next to that investigation? Because it's almost finished, isn't it? Yeah, they will put an end to it straight away. It isn't quite finished. I mean, they want uh, they want Trump to testify before it as well. But basically, I think it's in December 8th or something that the House will actually change hands. Um, yeah, Republicans, not only will they put an end to that investigation, they're going to restart, start retaliatory investigations of their own. So they've said that they will investigate Attorney General Merrick Garland because of his role in the raid on Trump's compound in Mar-a-Lago. There are going to be a lot of, lot of Republicans who want to impeach Biden for various reasons, so some of those efforts could get underway. So there's going to be a lot of political theatre taking place in the House of Representatives. I mean, there always is, but it's going to be in the opposite direction this time. All right, uh, Nick. Yeah, I've had somebody already, David, and you might say you're probably a more cautious person than I am. You might say you it's might- too early, but... Um, is this going to be the best midterm performance by an incumbent party for 20-odd years, do you reckon, just looking at what we're seeing? 
Um, it's very hard to tell at this stage. I do still think it's too early because I think that the Western states are really going to determine how good it is. Um, Nate Cohn from the New York Times has said that Democrats are actually overperforming their polls at the moment. Given where Biden's popularity is in the low 40s, Democrats seem to actually be holding on a bit better than expected. In one of the key, va- key races in Virginia, for example... Uh, which was Abigail Spanberger, who was expected to lose to her Republican challenger, Um, she seems to have held on for a win. So even though it's very likely Republicans will win the House, this hasn't been as bad for Democrats as it could have been. I think we're still a long way from being able to determine whether they've really overperformed, though. It's it's such an interesting midterm, and one of the reasons, I guess, David, you touched on earlier, I want to come back to it, is that many Americans are choosing whether or not to vote for candidates who deny the 2020 election results. Uh, And um, uh, a report in the New York Times reported that many democracies that once looked at the US as a model are really concerned that the U.S. democratic system has sort of lost its way, if you like. The quite extraordinary phenomena going on there. Do you want to touch on that a bit? Yeah, we are really facing this problem of people not being willing to accept the results of, of the election. When you don't have a mass willingness to accept the results of an election, when you don't have people valuing the democratic system above their own party winning. That is a huge problem for democracy. There are also big institutional problems with the way that American elections are conducted. Um, They're in the hands of individual states. And even though election workers try their hardest in the United States to run elections as smoothly as possible, and in many cases very successfully, nonetheless... In the counting stage, you get all of these allegations of fraud and because of the fact that the results change as more votes come in, people don't trust uh, the results. And this is becoming a a real problem in American politics, especially when you compare it to other countries around the world. Uh, Last week, Brazil had an incredibly clean and quick uh, election count, even though it had three quarters as many people voting in Brazil as you get voting in an American election. The result was known within three hours. In the US, because of the laws in certain states saying that you can't even look at postal ballots until they come in, uh, there's room for devious actors to sow all of this doubt um, in the results. And this is a huge problem. Certainly... Two, yeah, two states to look at are Nevada and Arizona, where you have election deniers on the ballot. Gosh, it's been wonderful having you on the program, David. Thank you so much for your time. That's uh, David Smith from the United States Studies Centre, uh, an associate professor in American politics here. 26 past for completely different topic. I talked about this at the top of the show. Uh, portion sizes too big. I was taken to task today when I suggested to a colleague that we share a Thai lunch, pad Thai, extra cashews. She said, who the hell shares? I said, I do everything. Even your brioche, I cut it down the middle, I have half. So do you agree with me that portion sizes these days are too big? With us uh, from Greymouth, we have Mike. Mike, welcome. Hi, how's it going? Very, very, very well. So if I come to the wonderful coast, what do I get? You get a hell of a lot. <laughs> if you go out, if you go out for dinner, you get massive. I mean, I'm a southern guy anyway, 
Um, and g'day, Nick. It's Mike Patrick here. Oh, um, g'day, Mike. <laughs> old, old mate. Sorry, Wal. Okay, but, um, right. But, but um, yeah, I, if I go out to dinner, I, I can't do a main course. If wow. I order the roast of the day, I do half one, or otherwise I just get an entree size. Unbelievable. Um, Unless it's white bait, I'll, wow. I'll go for a, a main course. They're just even even in cafes. One of the cafes that I go to, people you can see they've ordered a cheese scone with their coffee, and they will leave at least a quarter of it behind. Wow! Not yeah. So 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 Greymouth is uh, our Texas, I guess. Um, what yeah. do you think, Verity? Do you think that? portion sizes? Do they have to be that big? Do brioches have to be that big? Does the pad tie, why can't they do two-thirds size and charge not fourteen fifty but ten fifty? I, I I actually don't think Auckland-based portion sizes are big at all. I think they're very small. I think, though, having just listened to what you were just saying about Greymouth, yeah, I think there's a massive regional issue here. I think portion sizes change depending where you are in the country. But in Auckland, I find them small. Whereas the last time I was in Christchurch, you're right, I couldn't eat a I couldn't eat a whole cheese scone. Really? Yeah. Okay, so there's regional variation. Nick yes. Leggett. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's I think it's actually a really worthy topic, Wallace, um, because. I'm someone who lost a lot of weight quite a few years ago because I had a gastric band and uh, I was just sharing um, my personal story but actually it's relevant because what I realised when I had that is I couldn't eat as much and you recognise how much um, you, you know, we overeat um, for various reasons, often just because it's put in front of us and um, it really is I think an important thing and um, I've noticed that in restaurants and cafes around Wellington as things have got tighter um, portion sizes have reduced the, the, the cost hasn't but portion sizes have and I don't think most of us um, go without when we eat a little bit less well, I just, uh, I, I just, I actually got this idea, and I started looking at it, Mike, from a legendary. I interviewed a legendary food writer called Tui Flower, pioneering, described as New Zealand's Julia Child. Um, you know, so she, she, she was, um, you know, active many many decades ago. But do you, what do you make of that, Mike? Do you think um, portion sizes could come down a bit, or do you actually are you proud of it that you come to the coast and you can get a massive meal? Uh, some coasters will say that, but um, for me, I my main worry is um, if people don't finish their meals. What happens yes. to the leftovers? The waste. Yeah, it doesn't get a... chucked out. You know, if it goes to a piggery. Fine, but more often than not, I would I would suggest it goes into landfill. It just gets t- tossed yeah. out, and that's my big worry. Mike, great to have you on the program. Kia ora. That's Mike from Graham out there, who says come down to the coast and uh, there'll be massive. I do note what you say. I was in a Cromwell cafe about six weeks ago, and the the lolly cake there. It wasn't a slice. It was actually almost like half a full cake. It was a brick. Six fifty. I literally. So you went for it. No, I actually, I did actually. <laughs> Thank you, Nick. Um, but interesting, you putting that serious spin uh, on the portion size issue there, Nick. How are you? How are you now? Really good, but like, uh, you have to improve what you eat, right? But I didn't. I didn't magically uh, wake up. 
one day and suddenly start eating healthy, healthy food. It was the reduction in portion size that lost me the biggest chunk of weight. What was the moment, Nick, when you decided you wanted to change? But oh, I just think you know when you are not going to be able to shift weight the normal way. And to be fair, weight loss surgery is only a tool, uh, and you do have to work, and I still do work at it and exercise, but it's, you know, um, portion, how much we eat is should be on the table. All right. Uh, you're on the panel, RNZ National, Nick Leggett and Verity Johnson with me this afternoon.